0: Okay, let's start with a word of prayer, if we could. Our Father, we do give praise to your name and give you thanks for the privilege we have to come together as the body of Christ and to study your word. Lord, thank you for the words that were penned by Ezekiel so long ago that are profitable for us to study even today. So I pray that you would guide our minds and lead us into the truth by your spirit. And may what we do in this place today be pleasing in your sight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This is week number 20 in our study of eschatology. We're over in chapter 36. And last week we looked at verses 21 through 28 You remember this chapter opens with a a general, really, description of God in, in the future, how he's going to bless Israel. And in the current state in which Ezekiel is writing, you remember, Israel is in total desolation. The Israelites are in captivity in the land of the Babylonians over in Chaldea, and their land is totally decimated. It's desolate. So apparently there's going to be another time in the future where this same kind of desolation um, is going to exist in the land of Israel. Because this is not talking about the time in which Ezekiel lives, but a time that is still yet future, even for us today. So there's, there's going to be a time. We don't we can't say dogmatically exactly when it is in which Israel is again going, their land is going to be desolate. And apparently it's going to be, not have Israelites there either because that's the the current condition of the land. So, understanding that God begins to speak to Ezekiel. And so this whole chapter is somewhat unique. All through Ezekiel, Ezekiel has seen visions. um, God has taken him to places and shown him things. In this chapter, that's not what's going on. This is God speaking to Ezekiel, telling him what's going to happen in the future. The next chapter will be a vision. The previous chapters were a vision, but not this one. This one is God speaking what's going to happen in the future. Now, you remember that in those first 20 verses, God said it's for good reason that the land of Israel is desolate um, and that the Israelites had been scattered to the nations. And that reason was because of their idolatry, idolatry and their iniquity. But the thing that really concerned God, that he as he turns his attention to the people and begins to describe what their condition is, why they were banished from the land, God says his real concern is not about the people of Israel no longer being in their land. His concern is that his name has been profaned. And the reason God's name was profaned is because the people have been scattered. And so that, that that's the reason, that's what God begins to focus on. And if you remember back in verses 21, 22, 23, God said, I'm going to restore Israel, but I'm not going to do it for their sake. That's not the reason that God is is going to restore the land of Israel. It's not for the people. Even though the people will benefit greatly, even though they'll be blessed as God does this, that's not what his motive is. God's motive is that he may, he says he may vindicate his name and that the nations will understand that he is holy in the presence of the Israelites. And so God says he's going to act. So last week as we walked through um, verses 24 through 28 really, God describes the actions that he's going to take. And let's just walk through these real quick so we can reorient ourselves back to where we were last week. In verse 24, God says he will bring the people together together in the land of Israel that um, is unique for Israel that doesn't have anything to do with any other nation he's speaking directly to the Israelites that he'll put them in the land that he had promised to them now this really 24 through 31 or so are for me the clearest and the most glorious verses in all of scripture about the restoration of Israel and what God's going to do. And you remember we, we looked at back and forth New Testament, Old Testament last week of how these things that God speaks about the Israelites in the future during the beginning of the millennial kingdom are equivalent to New Testament salvation they're the same things that the scripture says have happened to those who placed faith in Christ during the church age 24 is not that is unique for Israel they'll be brought to their land but in verse 25 he says that he'll sprinkle them with water to cleanse them of their idolatry and their iniquities same thing the scriptures say about you and I that we've been washed with the water by the Spirit. That is a cleansing from sin. That's what God says he's going to do for the Israelites. He's going to cleanse them from their sins. And then in verse 26, he says he's going to put a new heart and a new spirit within them. And that speaks of the inner man. That speaks of your motives, your will, your emotions, your desires. Your motivations, all of that is what God says He's going to renew. He's going to change their heart and their spirit so that they want God and they want to serve Him in truth and obedience. Same thing happens to a new believer. As we're birthed anew in Christ, we're raised to walk as new creatures. The old things have passed away, new things have come. That's the same thing that's going to happen to the Israelites. As God gives them a new heart and a new spirit. Then in verse 27, he says that he'll put his Holy Spirit within them so that they will obey his ordinances. Same thing is true for a New Testament believer. As you place faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you, illumines your mind so you can understand the truth of Scripture and leads you into obedience as you grow in truth and knowledge. Same thing is going to happen to these Israelites. These will be human beings just like you and I are today. These are people that live through the tribulation into the millennial kingdom. So while this, all these things that God says he'll do, he will do, they will still be people just like you and I. Still be trapped in their humanness, still be prone to sin, still will sin, but yet they will have the Spirit of God within them to lead them into righteousness. We don't know how long these people will live. Will some of them live throughout the whole millennial kingdom, or will birth and and death go on? I think that's most probable, that people will still be born, and people will still die during the millennial kingdom. But these people, these Israelites, God says he's going to save them. He's going to transform them just like a New Testament believer is. All people come to God the same way. And and that is true for these Israelites that are alive during the millennial kingdom. Now, we could go to Colossians and show this very clearly. You notice that everything in these verses, is what God is going to do. The Israelites don't do anything here. Now, we know and we understand that when someone places faith in Christ, that they have to truly believe that, it, that they cooperate with the Spirit of God, they confess their sins, they repent of their sins. But it's God who initiates and completes salvation Scriptures are very clear in that. You can go to Colossians and see that. You can go um, to the Gospel of John in chapter 1 and see that. That salvation is not of the will of men. It's of the will of God. And so it is God who saves someone. And you see that here in these verses in Ezekiel very clearly. God said, I'm going to act. And here are the actions that he does. Just like step one, step two, step three, step four. These are the things that God is going to do for the Israelites. So, these verses, you know, it's only been a couple of years that I first discovered these verses in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36. I've never been taught that. I've never read it anywhere but written by any author, anywhere other than in the scripture that Ezekiel 36 is salvation for the Israelites in the millennial age that is equivalent to the New Testament salvation. Never and even the commentaries I read on this don't say that, but it's extremely clear, is it not, that that's what's going on here? So we got down to verse 28. And we just mentioned what's in 28 and then moved on. There, God says that they will live in the land of their forefathers. And the land is important and critical in the plan of God. From the very beginning, when God revealed his plan to Abraham, he showed Abraham a land that the Israelites were going to live in. And the reason his name is profaned among the nations is because they do not live there. So in order to reverse that and to cause the nations to no longer profane his name, the Israelites must live in the land Because that would negate the reason that people are profaning him. We miss that point. That in the plan of God, the land has always been significant. That's why God has brought it up. He brought it up in Joshua. He brought it up in Deuteronomy. He brought it up in Genesis. And now he brings it up in Ezekiel. This is God speaking. This isn't anybody else coming up and saying the land is important you're going to live in the land of your forefathers. I'm going to restore the land, the trees are going to produce fruit, the land's going to be cultivated and sown it's going to have a great harvest. Nowhere else this is God speaking and so the land is important to him and the reason it's important is because it's because the Israelites don't live there, is why his name is profaned. So, and you'll see that as we go through the end of this chapter, he says, because the nations will see you living there, and how blessed you are, and how glorious the land is, that they will know that I am the Lord. They will praise God for who he really is. So we'll see that as we continue to go through here. So, I cannot get away, I can't unlink the nations giving praise to God and the Israelites living in the land. I think they go hand in hand. And to separate them, then why would the nations praise God? What would be their reason? They would think that the Israelites said they were the chosen people of God, but they never were and that the old testament is just debunked but if they do live there and they are blessed and the nations see it then they understand at that point cuz it it does not escape the attention of the world that the israelites claim to be the chosen people of god and that the land that was given to them will be theirs that does, i mean i don't i don't know if I mean, the world understands that. But that's what the Middle East conflict is all about, is the Israelites taking back the land that they say God promised to them. So, you know, the world is well aware of that. And if God does what this chapter says he's going to do, the world will take notice. All the nations will recognize what has happened. Okay, so we go on in 28 go into 29 and 30 and there God gives promises to the nation of Israel things that he will do he'll save them from their uncleanness now this goes back to chapter I mean verse 27 where he says he'll sprinkle them with water and cleanse them but this is like you and I today If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins. Well, during the millennial reign, these Israelites are still trapped in their humanness. They will still sin. But God will continue, like he does for you and I, to cleanse them of their sins. And so that's what it says here. He'll save them from their uncleanness. If they fall, they confess, he cleanses them anew. And they go on. And they grow in righteousness. And so just like the way a New Testament believer does. And notice it says that he'll cause them to walk in his statutes. That's what the indwelling Holy Spirit is all about. That's why he put his spirit within them. That they may obey his statutes. That's what verse 27 says. And so here we see God continuing to help them to be the people that he wants them to be. This has never been true for the Israelites. You understand that in the Old Testament, very, very few people, only a handful, did the Holy Spirit come and indwell. I mean, he did for King Saul for a little while. He did for King David for a longer period of time. He did for Solomon. He did for some of the other kings who came later, but very, and, and a few of the prophets. But the spirit would come and then leave a person. Very different from what he says here, that he put his spirit within the Israelites to dwell within them, just like he does for a New Testament believer. Now, he also talks about some of the physical things that he's going to do. He'll multiply the fruit of the tree and the grain of the field. There will be plenty to eat in the land of Israel. Now this brings up a question in my mind, something that I would have never thought about the millennial kingdom. If he says that Israel will have plenty of food so that they won't experience famine, does that mean that maybe some other nations will experience famine during the millennial kingdom? Otherwise, what would be the big deal about it? And he says it twice, by the way, in these verses, that they'll no longer experience famine. So is it possible that during the millennial kingdom, when righteousness reigns, that there may be famine in other lands across in the nations? Yeah, so I just never thought of it that way. I ne- you know, I thought in the millennial kingdom the world is good and everything is nice and, you know, everything is full of righteousness. It's ruled by righteousness, but that doesn't mean all the people are. Or that everything goes just the way that you would want it to go. So, they teach as if the millennial kingdom is heaven on earth. I don't think so. Because it will be ruled with a rod, with a rod iron. I mean, there's got to be a reason that Christ rules with a rod. And it's because the nations don't always do what he would want them to do. Now, so you have this famine mentioned. And then he says the fruit of the trees and the produce of the land will be multiplied. And again, he repeats... So there will not be famine in Israel. So, in in the ancient days, when if Israel would go through a famine, then the nations would laugh at them, and they would become the scorn of other nations. That will not happen in the millennial kingdom. As a matter of fact, we'll see what the nations say about the land of Israel a little further down here. Alright, that was 30, 30, 30. And then thirty-one, God says, and, and we we want to think about this. God says, You will remember your evil way remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations." Now this is during the Millennial Kingdom. This is when Jesus Christ is reigning in Israel. So the Israelites remember their sins and their evil ways and they loathe themselves. Now why would that be important during the Millennial Kingdom? Well Think about the church today. What does the church today teach? Teaches that you're a new creation. Teaches that you're a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Teaches you that um, you're a royal priesthood. Right? All these things that absolutely are true about the believer. The problem with the church and it teaching all of those things is that is the focus of the church. Where here, in the very presence of God, they say, he says, you'll remember your sins and you will loathe yourselves. So does the New Testament teach the same thought about understanding who you were and being, loathing yourself for it. It does. I'll, I'll take you there in a minute. And the, what's the reason for that? The reason is because if you don't understand that and understand it well, then why would you be thankful to God? Why would you understand the grace of God? If, if you don't understand who you were before salvation, and as you remember that, you're ashamed of it, and it, it grips you, in that condition is when God poured out his grace. That causes you to be thankful, because there's, just like these Israelites, there's nothing that they do to cause God to act. Same thing is true in your, your, your life and my life. God did not act and save us so that we might be all those things that I just said, join heirs with Christ. I mean, those are true, absolutely, but that's not the reason. The reason is so that he might vindicate his name, so that he might show himself To be holy and kind and full of grace and mercy so that as you and I remember who we were and we see people around us who are still in that condition, we would show them who God is by our lives and by our words. That's why God saves us. Now turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. And you've read this before. I'm pretty confident you have but I want to show you that Paul says you need to remember who you were. Ephesians chapter 2, just start in verse 1. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And then he gets specific. Among them too, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So why does Paul remind them about that? So that he can say what's in verse 4. But... God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ for grace, by grace you have been saved. So if you don't understand and you don't remember who you were before salvation in Jesus Christ then you won't think about but God being rich in mercy and grace saved me took the initiative but if you do remember that it will drive you to thankfulness and giving God glory for what he's done in your life but that's not where the church is focused today the church church today is focused on me that I'm a child of God that I'm a joint heir with Jesus Christ that I'm a royal priesthood I'm a new creation I can live like God wants me to no I can't Apart from the indwelling Holy Spirit, I could not do what God wants me to do. There would be no righteousness within me. And that's what God is reminding them of over in Ezekiel, verses 30 and 31. You will remember your sins because that causes you to recognize who God is. And if you don't remember your sins... Then you have no reason to give God glory. I think it's one of the,
1: for us, I think it's enormously important to the way we evangelize.
0: Oh, yeah. That you must recognize your sins. And so when you're evangelizing someone, you don't know their sins, but you must, from the scripture, show them that they are sinners and they're in need of a Savior. If they don't understand that, why in the world would they ever trust Christ for their salvation if they don't recognize they need to be saved? I know. That's right. So, where do you start? Well, God loves you. You he remember. A wonderful for you. You, right. Yeah. You remember the great um, Southern Baptist slogan of about 15, 20 years ago where it was bumper stickers, signs, I found it? No, you didn't. No, you didn't. You didn't find anything. God revealed it to you. You didn't go searching and find anything. And so it's just wrong theology. And it focuses on the wrong things. And that's what, if God is jealous for his name in this time in the millennial kingdom, he's jealous for his name today. He's just tolerating people profaning his name. But that will stop. And in this time, no nation will profane his name. And that means no peoples of any of those nations and let's keep going so we can see that see it's all about the focus and here the the Israelites recognize their sin they'll recognize that they reject rejected the true savior for thousands of years they 'll understand that because God will reveal it to them and they'll be ashamed and confounded in your ways. I mean, how stupid can I be? That will be the attitude. I mean, is that not the attitude we should have about ourselves? How dumb could we be to think we did anything good before Christ saved us? us, us Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: direction
0: of the we see in the church. Yeah, and 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 men do not accept that they are fallen and in need of a savior apart from the quickening of the holy spirit. Doesn't happen. Natural mind cannot perceive spiritual things. It, it you know, this thought that I studied the scriptures and I realized the truth, so I trusted Christ. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. You know, I, I just, we, we have it so wrong compared to what the scripture says is true about us. Well, and tie it back to his holy name. This is right. what he says he does and what do we do in that doctrine? We steal that glory that God for ourselves. Has take it for ourselves. And, and God saves us for his name's sake not for our good. It is for our good without question. We benefit eternally because of it, but that's not the motive. This is not what you hear in the church, is it? But it's coming out of what he wrote about the Israelites in Ezekiel. So we keep going. So 25 through 31 describe describes the salvation of the Israelites, which is necessary in the millennial kingdom. I mean, you can't have a bunch of Israelites who don't believe in Jesus Christ and trust him as their savior. And remember, this is after God removed the leaders, after God called out the fat sheep. Those are gone. These are the true believers. These are the ones who trust Christ. These are the ones who live through the tribulation, into the millennial kingdom. These are the ones that are hidden in the desert for three and a half years. And then God brings them back to their land. Now, notice, I mean, if you don't get the point, then you're just refusing to hear it. Because in verse 32, look at what God says. I am not doing this for your sake declares the Lord God. How much clearer could God say it? I'm not doing it for your sake. Let it be known to you, be ashamed and confounded in your ways. I mean, I don't know how much clearer the scripture could be that God is saving these Israelites not for their good, not for their sake. It it does benefit them. They'll be in the kingdom of God forever. When they die, they'll be transformed and given new bodies just like we will. But that's not why God is doing it. He's doing it for his name's sake. And he he said it at the beginning and now he says it at the end. I'm not doing this for your sake. So it's the way we need to think about salvation. And I'm afraid we don't often do that. Now, 33 and 34, God gives some of the physical blessings that He will do in the land of Israel during the millennial kingdom. Let's just read them 33 and 34. Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited in the waste places will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. Now those people who pass by are the nations of the world. It's certainly the nations around Israel but it's other nations also. And and look at the next verse at what these nations say. They will say, this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden. It's the best place on the planet. And the waste, desolate, and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. The world will take notice. They will recognize that the land of Israel is like the Garden of Eden. That'll be the way the world describes it and they will be astounded by that fact that God has so worked in that land that there's harvest there's fruit on the trees there's the people can live off the land there are flocks there are herds there's plenty to eat throughout the whole millennial kingdom the people are blessed they live in these fabulous cities And the world will be absolutely astounded at how blessed these people are. And the reason that God wants that to be true is because that will cause his name to no longer be profaned. The nations will recognize that God is the Lord. Finish the chapter with me. Thus says the Lord God, this also, oh, I will let the house of Israel Hold on. 36. Then the na- nations that are left around about you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted the, that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. The nations will know that Israel is in the condition it is because God has done it. And this is like God saying, I'm telling you what I'm going to do, so it's as good as done. I have the right, I have the might, and I will do what I said I'm going to do, and that's this chapter. Well,
1: I was just reading Deuteronomy 8 and 9, which is fascinating what you just said, because
0: what God does in Deuteronomy 8 and 9 is tell them what they're going to do. Right.
1: When I have prospered, then your heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Then he goes on down and say, "Be ware, lest you say in your heart, My power and my might have done this." It's the exact same thing we were just talking.
0: And about. you know, you're reading from Deuteronomy eight and nine about the people taking credit for the land and their flocks and their herds. You know when that happened, right? In the book of Joshua, well, actually in the book of Judges, right after Joshua dies, then the people looked to themselves and went after idols and all. That's when they thought that they had done all this. And God said, no, you haven't. Here's 400 years of confusion.
1: And judgment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This the plan has always been the same; it's not changed. And this land and the restoration of it is essential for the nations to quit profaning the name of God. And we miss that. In the you know, why would God put Israel? But let me ask you this: What he just said here? Here's what I'm going to do. I, the Lord, have said it. I will do it. Why would you allegorize that? Why? God says exactly what he's going to do. They'll lend in the land of their forefathers. It'll all be blessed. And I will do it. Why do you allegorize that? Yeah, why does that have to be spiritual and not physical? Well, they won't believe it. it it does contradict preconceptions that they deny having <laughs> and remember this whole chapter if you're in certain camps is reinterpreted by what the new testament says i just can't go there this is god speaking to ezekiel to speak to the people and he lays out exactly what ha- will happen And this matches what God has done in the age of grace of the church. Why would this not be true? Why would this be some spiritual allegory? It makes no sense to me whatsoever. That God will do what he said he'll do so the nations will quit profaning his name. Now that makes sense. Well, you know, you think about Ezekiel and these people. God lays out how salvation happens in clear detail. They never experience, they have no idea what he's talking about. What do you mean, sprinkle me clean and then my sins will be washed away? I've got to go sacrifice an animal and be sprinkled with the blood of the animal. That's not, this is New Testament salvation. And it's needful for the Israelites to be changed in the same way that God changes people today. That is needed in the millennial kingdom. For these people to be true believers, for them to be eternally saved with God. For them to be able to live obediently, it's needful. So, for me, this all makes perfect sense. This fits the plan of God. It fits the nations no longer profaning. But you've got to remember, those who say this is an allegory also don't believe there's a millennial kingdom. There is no kingdom. We're living in the kingdom today. It just speaks of a long period of time that the Christians will transform the world over time and then usher in the reign of Jesus Christ. That's, That's the other camp. Uh, no, I think we're going the wrong way, and believe me, that theology took big hits in the 20th century when we had two world wars. And the more the world fights, the bigger hits it takes. So, chapter 36. This is one of the one of my favorite Old Testament passages in all of Scripture because it's so clear. Now, we may come back and talk about a few things at the end of this chapter next week. But then we'll go into chapter 37, which is the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, which would make a great scientific, I mean, um, science fiction movie. If someone would just write this as a movie script, it would be fabulous. But they're not going to do that because it comes out of scripture. Can you save that till next week? Because I've got some thoughts about the valley of dry bones that are mine. Again, like 36? I've never read anybody who says this about it. 37, I think, speaks to that. And it speaks to the last two verses of chapter 36, which says the people will ask God to give them flocks of men and God will do that and the men will be like they are in Jerusalem during the time of feasts. So I want to talk about that and I think that is then why the Valley of Dry Bones comes next. Thanks for your time.